Well, I invite your attention to the public reading of God's Holy Scripture as we find it in Luke chapter 4 and verses 1 to 13. Luke chapter 4 and verses 1 to 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led about by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days while tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. When they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has not been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. Jesus answered and said to him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, cast yourself down from here. For it is written, he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, you shall not force a test on the Lord your God. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. It's a delight to be with you this morning. Uh, let's bow our hearts in prayer and ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, bless us as we hear your word. Cause Christ to dwell in our hearts through faith. Strengthen us by your word and spirit and cause us to abide in the Son of God who loved us, gave himself for us, has been raised for our justification, intercedes for our salvation, and will return in glory to judge the wicked and bring the righteous to himself for eternal beatitude in your presence. Bless us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text in Luke 4, 1-13 invites us to think back in covenant history to the work of special creation and God entering into a covenant of works or life with Adam in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 2, 7 you remember God formed Adam from the dust of the earth and breathed the breath of life into him and entered into a covenant of life. And he commanded Adam to guard and tend the Eden sanctuary, to keep it from being defiled, to be holy before the Lord in all of his works and in all of his ways. But as we know, Adam failed to render God perfect, personal, exact and entire obedience. He failed to keep the garden pure and holy. The serpent entered into the garden, deceived his wife, deceived him, sifted them, and brought about, through his temptation, their disobedience, their sin, their fall, and their exile from Eden. And if you remember, just before God banished Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, he drew near to them in Genesis 3.15, and he made a fundamental, primal gospel promise to them that consisted in this. He said to the woman, From you 
and your offspring will come a seed. He will bruise the head of the serpent while his heel is bruised. And from that moment forward, Adam and Eve and all the righteous set their hearts and minds on the appearance of this one who would destroy the works of the devil, clothe them with the garments symbolized by the animal slain. And as Adam and Eve walked out of the uh, garden, guarding it was a flaming sword facing in every direction. Showing that the one who would ascend the mountain of God, the one who would eat from the tree of life, would have to pass under the sword of judgment. Luke informs us in his genealogy that the promised seed of Genesis 3.15 is the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ. I want to explain to you how he does that in this genealogy. In Matthew's genealogy, he begins with Abraham, moves to David, and comes to Jesus Christ as Abraham's offspring, David's greater son, and David's Lord. Luke does not begin in antiquity. He begins with Jesus' contemporary experience, and he traces his genealogy back behind David, back behind Abraham, all the way to Adam as the son of God. And his point is to set forth Jesus Christ as the Son of God in direct comparison and contrast to Adam as the Son of God. And no sooner is that genealogy given than Jesus Christ is baptized by John the Baptist. The Spirit of God hovers down and descends upon Jesus, and the Father from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. That is the inauguration of Jesus' ministry as the Spirit-baptized, Father-approved Son of God, the second and last Adam. And no sooner is Jesus baptized, no sooner does the Spirit descend upon him, than he is driven in the wilderness to recapitulate the temptation that Adam faced in the Garden of Eden. Our text tells us in verses 1 and 2 that Jesus, as the Spirit-baptized Son of God, the second and last Adam, is driven by the Holy Spirit into the desert where he ate nothing for 40 days and 40 nights and where he encountered the temptations of the serpent, Satan. And this paves the way for temptations that are strikingly similar to the temptation that Adam underwent in the Garden of Eden, but with some significant differences. First, there's a contrast between Eden and the desert. The desert, in many ways, is the antithesis to the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden, before the fall, was a beautiful, lush, 
fertile environment. It had every tree for food, save the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Streams of water flowed through it to satisfy every thirst. If Eden is a prototype for the time before the fall, the desert is the prototype for the time after the fall. As the scriptures teach, God subjected the earth to a curse. And the desert is a vivid, concrete symbol of that curse that extends to all of Adam's offspring naturally and to the earth. And please hear this. Jesus begins his ministry in a sin-cursed desert. Your incarnate Savior did not place his feet on the pre-fall, pristine ground in Eden, but on the scorched earth of the desert. Face to face with Satan, facing temptation. There's also a contrast between Jesus and Adam beyond the obvious one from the conference that Jesus is a divine person incarnate, which I won't resummarize. But in, con- in addition to that contrast, Adam was given a sinless helpmate taken from him. He had intimate, sinless human companionship to bolster him in the face of temptation. But Jesus is alone. Because only he is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is alone because there is one mediator after the fall between God and man. He had no human companionship, no confidant, no human helpmate to offer him encouragement and support. He is a solitary figure alone in the desert, having no contact with a human being for 40 days or 40 nights. Second contrast. Adam was given every tree in the garden paradise as food, save the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Every food to satisfy every conceivable appetite. But Jesus is not only hungry. He is not only without food. But he is without food for 40 days and 40 nights in his true humanity in the desert. It is as such that your mediator entered into his official inaugurated public ministry. And the last words that Jesus heard, according to our text, are the words of the Father as the Spirit descended in avian form upon him. You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. Forty days, forty nights pass, and the next words that Jesus hears, alone and emaciated in the desert, are these words. If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus hears, after the words of his Father, the words of Satan a direct, militant, subversive challenge to the Word of God and the identity of the Son of God. And the temptation is this, in the form of a command, tell this stone to become bread. What's the logic of this temptation? 
It's something like this. I'll paraphrase and expand a bit. Forty days ago, your father said that you are the beloved son. You received the Spirit without measure. Forty days have passed and you have eaten nothing in the wilderness. Is this the love and the provision of your father? If you are indeed who he said you are, tell this stone to become bread and satisfy hunger to the point of death. And this temptation mirrors the temptation of the first Adam. Misuse food to satisfy self. But it's also at a deeper level designed to undermine Jesus' trust in his humanity, in his Father's provision. But there's something remarkable, and this is, should be so encouraging to you. No one in human history, up until this moment, had ever stood for a moment in the face of Satan and overcome him. The very first words that come from Jesus' mouth, particularly in the Greek, is a negation. Ook. Not by bread alone does man live. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 8.3, which was a reference to Israel in the desert when Israel complained about the manna that God had given them and they asked God and Moses if they were brought out into the wilderness to die. And the response to God of God to those people is that you are to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God, not by bread alone. Listen to me, follow me, trust me, and I will guide you, I will provide for you. And they scoffed at the word of the Lord and denied him in the wilderness. And what is so fascinating about that scenario is that in Exodus 4, 22 through 23, when God spoke about the identity of Israel as his people, as a nation, he said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let people go my people go, and then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go, that he may worship me. What is Jesus saying? I'll tell you what he's saying. He's saying, not only am I the second and last Adam, I am the new and true Israel I am the Son of God, and unlike Adam and unlike Israel, I live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Doing my Father's will is my meat and my drink, and it is the very first time that the serpent's head had been bruised. The very first time a human being had spoken Words of absolute antithesis to the person and work and kingdom of the devil. Jesus is recapitulating 
and reversing the temptation of Adam as the protological son, of Israel as the typological son, Exodus 4.23, and he's doing it as what? The beloved incarnate son of God. He's obeying perfectly, personally, exactly and entirely for you, for his people, for the seed of the woman. And it's as though the first ray of glory breaks in Jesus' public ministry. Finally, for the first time, there is a perfect, sinless, obedient son destroying the works of the devil for his people. But Satan will not give up so easily. Look at verses 5 and 8. Satan takes Jesus. Luke uh, makes an allusion to it. Matthew makes it explicit. He takes Jesus to a mountain, to an elevated place. And the mountain places Christ in a geographically exalted position in order to be shown somewhat supernaturally all of the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory. And what is the command of Satan? These kingdoms and their glory have been given to me, and he wants one thing. He wants the heart of religion. He asks for one thing only. All these things will be given to you, Jesus, if you will but what? Worship me. All Satan desires of you is worship. He wants what is due to God alone to be directed to him alone, and he calls the Son of God to worship him. It is the same basic strategy that Satan used with Adam and Eve in the garden. They were to worship his person and follow his word rather than to worship the triune God and follow his word. It's the same kind of strategy Satan used with Israel. Obtain the glory of Canaan without obedient suffering. Satan's strategy with Adam, with Israel, and with Christ is to redirect worship to himself and at all costs away from the living and true God. What is Jesus' response? He quotes this time from Deuteronomy 6.13. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Here's what Jesus is saying. Satan, you're a creature. Satan, you are a fallen creature. And Satan, you and every other creature is to worship God alone, the living and true God, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the triune God of Scripture. You are to worship God, never the creature. You know what's so fascinating about this text? In the Old Testament, it appears in a very important portion of Scripture in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6 is what is famously known as the Shema, from the Hebrew, to hear. And what was the call of the Lord to his people? Hear, O Israel, you are to love 
and worship only the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your might, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. The one thing God calls from the covenant of works to the covenant of grace, from creation to consummation, the singular thing he calls forth from all creatures is whole-souled, undivided, comprehensive worship. And what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I, as incarnate, am the living embodiment of the Shema. I have come in my humanity as a representative, as a substitute, as a redeemer, to worship only my Father in heaven and to do all of his will for the salvation of his people. And I want to tell you what happens that I don't think Satan was aware of. Satan took Jesus to a high mountain to show him the kingdoms, right? What does God turn that into? A movement in an exodus. Jesus' first temptation is in the wilderness. Israel was brought out of Egypt into the wilderness. And where did they go from the wilderness? They went to a mountain. But on that mountain, as Moses was worshiping God at its base, Israel committed idolatry. What is happening on this mountain? Perfect, representative, sinless, incarnate worship on your behalf. God is effecting an exodus from wilderness desert to mountain in the sinless obedience of the one who walks and lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God and who worships his Father according to his revealed will perfectly. Satan is obstinate. Satan is pure evil. And he takes Jesus a third time, this time to the temple. In verses 9 through 12, he takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. And the location is somewhat ironic because the temple is the place where faithful priestly mediation on behalf of Israel was occurring. The priests, like Adam, are both called to guard and tend the temple, not let any unholy thing defile it. And Satan takes Jesus to the pinnacle, the top of that temple. And it's an ironic and subtle temptation. He wants the Son of God to profane the name of his Father on the very symbol of holiness to God. And the temptation strategy changes. And I'll give you a sense of it. Jesus is quoted from Deuteronomy 8.3, Deuteronomy 6.13. Satan recognizes that Jesus is presenting himself as the one about whom the scriptures were written. Jesus will later teach his disciples, all of the scriptures beginning with Moses are about me. And he opened their eyes to see the necessity of his suffering and glory as he fulfilled the scriptures of the Old Testament. Satan gets that and he says, okay. Psalm 91, 11 through 12 says, he will command his angels concerning you, 
scripture-fulfilling Messiah. They will guard you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Satan says to Jesus, cast yourself down from here onto those stones, and angels will protect you. Now this is possibly the most fascinating of the three temptations. Because Satan is saying to him, if you are the scripture-fulfilling son of God, fulfill this scripture right here, right now. Show your glory now. I always thought that was quite strange, but I, the longer I've looked at this text, I want to ask you a question, see if you notice this. Why, of all the scriptures in the Old Testament, would Satan pick one that has reference to the feet of the Messiah. From Genesis to the book of Malachi, why the feet of the Messiah? I want to tell you why. Because the primal promise in Genesis 3.15 is that he, the Messiah, will bruise your head with his heel. Romans 16.20 Satan will soon be cast and, and tread under your feet because tread under his feet. And so Satan appeals to the feet of the Messiah because they have been applied to him twice in obedience. But if you keep reading the text in Psalm 91, Listen to what the very next verse says, the one that Satan omits. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. What was Satan saying? I don't want to be at all impious, but he's saying, get those feet away from me. Go that way. Jump that way. Leave me. Why? Because he knew that the feet of the Messiah were sovereignly predestined by the Messiah to crush him underfoot. And two consecutive movements, those feet had been applied to him. And let me just make this explicit. First Peter 5.9 in light of Psalm 91.13, Satan prowls around like a roaring lion. Revelation 12.9 says that Satan was the ancient serpent. Why are the feet of the Messiah preserved? To tread the lion, to tread the serpent underfoot. Jesus responds again, and this time, he brings a crushing blow to the lion or to the serpent. Deuteronomy 6.16, this is the shortest quote, indicating, you will not sift me. It says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Commentators wonder, is Jesus making a reference to himself as the Lord God incarnate? I think it is likely. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Perfect obedience, perfect 
worship, perfect faithfulness, three consecutive temptations. But verse 13, if you've ever read this text much before, Satan left Christ until an opportune time. What is that opportune time? You don't have to guess. Luke makes it really explicit, and I'll show you how. Turn to Luke 23, 35 through 39. These temptations, in substance and in sequence, recapitulate the three temptations in the wilderness. Except now it's more subtle because the serpent, listen, the serpent recedes to the background and his offspring speak on his behalf. You can think of these three temptations as the seed of the serpent coiling, as it were, around the cross at the opportune time to tempt the Savior. And the language and the nature of the temptations are astonishing. Listen. The people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Then there was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now notice this. This is rapid fire, threefold, recapitulation of what happened in the wilderness with Satan backgrounded and his offspring foregrounded. Even more subtle. And the first uh, is where the, the, the rulers scoff at him and say he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God. Just reverse it. If you are the Christ of God, conditional, Save yourself. It's exactly the same structure as the temptations Satan used. The soldiers mock him, offering him sour wine, saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. If you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. I call it satanic syntax. It's precisely the same syntax Satan used. And then the most subtle of them all was a thief next to him. Are you not the Christ, the Savior? Save yourself and us. It's the most subtle of all the appeals because it directly appeals to Jesus' messianic self-consciousness. He said, I came into this world to do what? to save sinners. And this thief, the ultimate climactic instrument in the hand of Satan, save yourself and us. These three three temptations are the opportune time of Luke 4.13. The threefold repetition, the syntax, and the substance are a recapitulation of what Satan tried and failed in the wilderness. And I want you to notice something about this. And it's chilling for those who worship the creature. Jesus never said a word in response. 
Jesus' voice is silent. The time of judgment was not yet. The time of salvation was at hand. And he quietly, faithfully, obediently went to the cross with his enemies and the seed of the serpent, casting aspersion upon him and mocking him. Luke's gospel has a lot of voices. Voice of the Father, the voice of the Son, the voice of the serpent, and the voice of the serpent's offspring. And Jesus' voice has grown silent as the serpent and his offspring encircle him. But there's another voice in the narrative, another thief. And he cries out alone next to Jesus. And he says something remarkable. First to the other thief, second to Jesus. The other thief rebuked the first thief and said, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, we indeed justly, for we're receiving our due reward. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. What is he doing? I'm telling you, this is quite remarkable in terms of the narrative. A thief who has not been named as a disciple of Jesus, who's not sent under Jesus' teaching, what is he saying? He's saying to the thief, as they're both dying, we are getting what we deserve. This man, Jesus, is sinless. What is he doing in terms of the theology of Luke? Please hear this. He's joining his voice with the Father. The Father at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry says, this is my beloved Son, with Him I am well pleased. The thief at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry in, in His suffering says, this man has done nothing wrong. He joins His confession to the proclamation of the Father regarding the sinless perfection of the Son of God publicly, right there in front of everyone, rebuking the other thief. There is the two seeds at war. Hmm? Do you see it? One misdirecting, deceiving, the other confessing the truth. But then the thief calls out personally to Jesus. He turns to his Savior and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He finishes speaking to the thief and he now calls out in faith to the Son of God to remember him when after he dies, he comes in his kingdom in power and glory. And it's a lone voice. There's only one. Jesus, remember me. It's a voice of faith, a voice of trust, a voice who has made the good confession. Up until this moment, Jesus has been silent. But when he hears the voice of one of his sheep calling to him personally, with some of his last breaths, he turns to him and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is that heavenly realm hidden presently from sight, which Jesus comes to open in his obedience, his suffering, 
and his death. And Jesus promises the thief that though their bodies are laid in the ground on that day, the thief will depart with him to be met emu with me in the paradise of God. One of my favorite portions of Scripture, uh, pardon me, my favorite uh, Shorter Catechism questions is Westminster Shorter Catechism 37. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? Answer, the souls of believers at their death are made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory and their bodies, still united to Christ, rest in their graves until the resurrection. Hebrews 12.23 says that when you come to Mount Zion, you come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect in the presence of Jesus. And Jesus is telling the thief, today you will be with me in paradise even as our bodies are laid in the grave. Jesus has a true body. Jesus has a reasonable soul as the Redeemer. And he brings his people where he is. Death advances them to his presence. And I want you to appreciate this. Jesus didn't speak to those who were crucifying him, to those who were mocking him. The words he will speak to them are reserved for the end of the age in judgment. But he spoke words of life and truth and salvation to the thief. And every single person, listen to this, who calls out to Jesus, Lord, remember me. By his word and through his spirit, he says to you, you belong to me. Where I go, you follow. So when you think about this text, remember this. It summons you to join your voice with the Father, to join your voice with the thief. And as those for whom Jesus came to die, call out personally and directly to him. Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus tells you this. Not only when you die, you will be with me in paradise. But he says, behold, I am with you always. Even to the end of the age, Matthew 28, 20. And I, Hebrews 13, 5, will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Call out to him. He and he alone opens the gates of paradise for his people. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, bless this gospel to our hearts. Build us up in Jesus Christ. Fill us with your spirit. and Cause us to know Jesus Christ, who has made atonement for our sin and who has been raised for our life and who opens the gates of paradise for us. Continue to confer Christ and all of his benefits on us and strengthen our hearts as we dwell in him, even as by his Spirit he dwells in us.
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.